0: Well, we're now going to turn to the words of the Bible. We're going to be reading from the book of Exodus, chapter 17. And if you're using one of the church Bibles that you picked up as you came in, that's page 59, page 59 in the church Bible. So we're going to read the whole of chapter 17. So Exodus, chapter 17, reading from verse 1. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by by stages according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us? And our children and our livestock with thirst. So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and taking your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock. And water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under the heaven, from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, "The Lord is my banner, saying, "A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek, from generation to generation." This is the words of the Lord. It will uh, it'll help you greatly if
1: you turn to Exodus 17 in the Bible, if you have one there, or get one from the back, page 59, if you're using a church Bible, and we'll be looking this morning at verses 8 to 16, the second half of the chapter. It's the 7th century, and the pagan Saxon king of Northumbria, Ethelfrith. Uh, is invading the Christian region of Wales. An army is ranged against him, um, but he also sees over to the side a large group of unarmed men with a few guards around them. He asks his advisors who they are, and he is told that they are the Christian monks of Bangor, where there is an enormous monastery, thousands of monks. These men have been fasting for the last three days, and they have come to pray for the outcome of the battle. Well, pagan or not, this apparently was Ethelfrith's response. Attack them first. Attack them first. If they call on their Lord against us, he said, assuredly they are fighting against us, even though they do not bear arms, for they strive against us with their hostile prayers. Well, so, so the story goes, anyway, as told by a historian from the 12th century, Henry of Huntingdon. Um, I wish I could tell you that it had a happy ending, but Henry records that the guards assigned to the monks fled, 1,200 monks were slaughtered in cold blood, and then the Welsh army was overrun too. If that's true, then pagan Ethelfrith had a greater understanding of the significance of prayer. Than his Christian opponents, and it has to be said, than many Christians do today. And it also follows, does it not, that the Amalekites missed a trick in the events that we read earlier from Exodus 17? There they are putting all their energies into fighting Joshua down at ground level when they should have been trying to get at Moses on top of the hill. This morning, I want to do three simple things. I want to make sure that we have a clear understanding of the facts of what happened here, and then we'll see a principle that we're being invited to recognize, and then we'll see a practical lesson that we're being invited to draw. Facts, principle, lesson. Um, Let's begin with another moment from history. On the 8th of December, 1941, U.S. President Franklin D. Roosevelt addressed a joint session of the U.S. Congress. Less than 24 hours earlier, imperial Japanese forces had attacked Pearl Harbor. In a speech that lasted under seven minutes, the president called for a declaration of war against Japan, a request which Congress granted within the hour. It would become one of the most famous speeches of history. Roosevelt spoke of how the American people had been at peace with Japan, how Japan had acted uh, deceitfully and dishonestly. He spoke of the treachery and hostility of an unprovoked and dastardly attack. Always, he insisted, will our whole nation remember the character of the onslaught against us. But the expression by which the speech has become known in history is one that he used right at the beginning when he referred to the 7th of December, 1941, as a date which will live in infamy. Roosevelt's speech is is widely known as the infamy speech. History is littered with infamous dates, occasions which are notable for their horrifically outrageous and despicable acts. Um, Sometimes it's a place name in our own context, names like Dunblane, Lockerbie, Enniskillen, so on. Plenty more that we could mention, but names which are sadly inextricably tied to sorrow and evil. It's just sometimes it's a number, sometimes it is a date that lives in infamy, 9-11, 7-7. And of course, we could spend all morning just going through history, going through different parts of the world and picking out um, endless accounts of despicable acts of treachery and cowardice, infamous dates. Now, in one sense, what happens in Exodus 17 is nothing unusual. We're talking about a period of history which was unstable and violent when wars were just commonplace. Nations and people groups jostled for power, and they did so with weapons, and that's just how it was. We know from other sources that the Amalekites were semi-nomadic desert dwellers who lived partly by attacking other population groups and plundering their wealth. They were, they were clearly a, a, a lovely lot. Uh, apparently, they were camel specialists. They had domesticated the camel and used it in war. Now, I don't know if that immediately strikes terror into your heart, um, but here's a thing you might not know. Over short distances, a, tra- a, a camel can travel at 45 miles an hour, which is faster than a horse. When the battle gets underway at verse 11, the fact that the Amalekites prevailed unless Moses lifted the staff indicates that clearly in human terms, in terms of the the, the armies ranged against one another, the Amalekites are stronger and better armed and better trained. That's what you would expect at this point in Israel's life. But here's the thing. Whatever military prowess they had, they deployed it against Israel in a particular way, and one that meant that this day was a day that would live in infamy in the Israelite history books listen to how Moses describes it. Don't worry about looking this up, but this is how Moses describes it in Deuteronomy 25. Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary, and cut off your tail those who were lagging behind you, and he did not fear God. Now, there's just a a whole world of pain in that. So, what we have to imagine is cavalry troops with swords, not lining up to face an army in honorable combat, but swooping in on the sick, the elderly, the young, the weak, and hacking them to pieces. When it says in verse 8 at the beginning of this passage that Amalek came and fought with Israel, that's what it means. You ever watch one of those nature documentaries? where you have a pride of lions in the long grass stalking a herd of antelopes or something. And there's just the most horrible feeling of inevitability about it all. And then there's just, you, ever, you see the, the, the heartbreaking moment where the camera, the camera pans across and it, and it finds the little injured baby antelope that can't keep up with the rest. And the lion stalks it and stalks it and picks it out that's the one I'll have. That's the one that can't get away. It's pitiless, and it's horrible. The attack of the Amalekites upon Israel is a sickening, unprovoked act of vicious hostility, deliberately targeting those least able to defend themselves. So, doubtless, um, the people of Israel could have said what Roosevelt said so many years later, we will always remember not just the battle, we will always remember the character Of the onslaught against us. And actually, we're being introduced to two features which characterize the Amalekites throughout the Bible, cruelty and cowardice. But the only thing that you can say for this people is that they were consistent. Every time they're mentioned, they act in cruel and cowardly ways. Their atrocities continue throughout the years as they harry and attack Israel repeatedly with unprovoked aggression. They're often found acting in league with other powers in the nation against Israel interesting if you you move forward in time, if you know the story of Esther and uh, the attempt of Haman to accomplish the complete genocide of the Jewish people, and the story happens to mention that Haman was a descendant of Agag. Guess what that makes him? He's an Amalekite, and that means that he hates Jews. He loathes them, hence his attempt to wipe the lot of them out. So, over and over again, If Amalek had had its way, Israel would have been wiped out altogether. And remember what that means. No people of God, no Messiah, no Savior, no gospel. That's what's at stake. It's worth noting at this stage that the the outcome of the battle here is that Joshua overwhelms the Amalekites, verse 13. And it's an unusual choice of word. You would normally, defeats or destroys or something like, overwhelms is a very particular word. It really means something like weakens. Uh, And it's been suggested that there's a kind of sly pun there. Deuteronomy twenty-five records the memory of the Amalekites attacking from behind the weak, the weakened, And, and you know, the struggling and the stragglers. And here Joshua weakens those who attack the weak. There's a kind of poetic justice in what transpires. So those are the facts. Here is Israel's date, which will live in infamy. Well, after that initial attack. The Amalekites seem to back off, and it's the next day that battle is really joined. Joshua will lead the troops. Uh, This is the first time he appears in the Bible. He's not really introduced as such. His his name just appears, uh, I guess, because everybody knew who Joshua was. Joshua was Israel's military strategist and commander-in-chief. He was someone that the nation would greatly need in the next phase of its history, many battles ahead, and he would become Moses' assistant, and then, in time, his successor as leader of the nation. At this stage, he's about 45 years old. We have to assume, I think, that since the exodus, he's been busy training up an army of fighting men and fashioning whatever weaponry he could. They they knew perfectly well that there were battles ahead of them. But of course, the Israelite strategy here is two-pronged, isn't it? Look at what Moses says to Joshua at verse 9. Joshua, you choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek, Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek, while Moses, Aaron, his brother, and Hur, who is another Israelite elder, went up to the top of the hill. Either Moses instinctively realized what he needed to do, or, I suspect this is more likely, He received instruction from God, which which just isn't recorded for us in the text here. But either way, what follows is a vivid demonstration of a crucially important principle. What follows here is theology being acted out for us. Verse 11 is the crux of it. When Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever Moses lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. Remember, he's holding the staff of God, and, and the way the Hebrew works, it's, it's, it makes it clear in the context that, that there's variation in what happens. This, this happens, and, and the, something happens in the battle down below, and then, and then he gets his strength up and, and, and raises it, and, something, and that happens several times to make it crystal clear that there's a direct connection between Moses' actions on the top of the hill and, and the, the changing fortunes of the battle. On the face of it, it's a strange thing, isn't it? We're not actually told anything about what Moses is thinking or saying or doing, just the holding of the staff. On the face of it, the outcome of the battle seems to depend entirely on nothing more than the physical holding up of a staff. But remember what we know of this staff. Not long ago, it was just Moses' shepherd's staff. But since then, the Lord has adopted it as a symbol of His presence and power. The staff has been used over and over again to demonstrate that the power going out in plague after plague, and in the parting of the sea, and in the striking of the rock, the power going out is God's power. He is helping His people. He is providing for His people. He is saving His people. It's the power of the living God. And so the principle that we're being shown here, the theological truth being acted out for us, couldn't really be any clearer. God determines the outcome of every battle. God determines the outcome of every battle. Please hear that. Please know it to be true. It's not a subtle point, is it? It's just its blazingly obvious. The raising of the staff is an appeal to God and a sign of dependence on God, We are are looking to you. The whole thing is is God's way of making it crystal clear to His people that, that this victory and all victories are won by divine power. The staff says the Lord is here. The warrior king is here. God fighting for His people. Now, of course, Joshua and his men are still down there at ground level, giving it all they've got, aren't they? They're sweating and bleeding and dying because because that's how faith works. This is the paradox of faith. We depend on God completely and simultaneously exert every effort for His cause. That's what we do. Holding these things together all the time, we're doing everything we can for the cause of God. Someone looking on would think that everything depended on our effort. But at the same time, we know perfectly well that it doesn't depend on our effort, and we are 100% dependent and reliant upon God Himself. God uses means to achieve His end. So, so when God says, I'm going I'm to give you the victory, you don't just sit down in the middle of the battlefield and wait. You take heart and fight. Famously, Oliver Cromwell uh, is supposed to have told his troops on one occasion, trust in God and keep your powder dry. Good expression. Trust in God and keep your powder dry. God accomplishes purposes, but, you know, mostly He uses dry gunpowder to do it. Or to pick up that Pearl Harbor incident from earlier on, in the aftermath of the attack, as the American forces scrambled to get themselves organized, there is a reliable account of a chaplain by the name of Forgy, uh, who was overheard uh, uttering the immortal line, praise the Lord and pass the ammunition. Was the inspiration for a song. You might remember it if you were around in 1942. Praise the Lord and pass the ammunition. The point is that we give it all in the service of God, but we remember all the time that God determines the outcome of every battle. Why is this so important? Well, let's do some alternate history. Have you seen any of these things, spate of these things? over a number of years, novels or TV series about how history might have unfolded if something had been different, and things like um, Philip Dick's The Man in the High Tower, or C.J. Sansom's Dominion, various novels, books, TV series. Um, so, let's imagine for a moment what would have happened if everything had unfolded exactly the same way, except for the part about Moses being on the top of the hill, raising up his staff towards God. If victory had been won on that basis, the Israelites would have gone on their merry way singing, We are the champions, my friend. Look at us. Are we not something? What's Hebrew for, here's teas was like us? Only by that obvious visible sign can God drive home to His people that the key thing for their life, their future, their everything is dependence on Him. And we actually we know that's the point of the story, partly because of verse 15. So, after the battle, we're told that Moses built an altar and called the name of it, the Lord is my banner. That, that word actually refers to a, a, a flagstaff, but by extension to the flag that flies from it. It's a word that would be used in the military context to describe national or regimental colors. The troops in a battle, they're fighting away, they look up, they see the colors of their regiment, they see the flag of their nation, and they're reminded what they're fighting for, and they're reminded of the loyalty that they owe, and they're reminded of what's at stake, and it puts heart in them. Phil Reichen says, soldiers always look to their banner. It establishes their identity. It helps them know who they are. On the battlefield, it also helps them keep their bearings and gives them courage and hope. As long as their banner is still flying, they know that the battle is not lost. Moses says, the Lord is my banner. We look to Him. We rally to Him. This is what the Christian life, and yes, the Christian fight is all about. So how do we apply this kind of principle to our own lives? Well, let me tell you what we don't do. We don't treat anything we don't like in life as a battle and declare that God will help us to win the victory over it. Uh, we don't pronounce anyone who irritates us as an enemy and declare that God will help us defeat this enemy. You know, some guy keeps, keeps parking too close to my drive and blocking my car, you know, he's, become my, he's like an Amalekite, that guy. No, no, no. This is about hostility towards the gospel hostility towards God's purposes and God's plan. And so, as Christians, we do face spiritual battles, and spiritual battles of two kinds. We face, if you know the hymn, Just As I Am, there's a line in that hymn that tells us we face fightings and fears within, without. There are times when attacks come against the church from the outside, from the unbelieving world, sometimes entirely unprovoked. And that's to be expected. And the entire Bible demonstrates that from start to finish. That's not something to be worried about. It's just something to be prepared for and to be wise about. And like the Amalekites, we should be prepared for the enemy to play dirty because he is the father of lies. Let me tell you something. Let me, let me give you an example of this. I don't know if you've ever heard. There's an American um, comedian called Bill Mayer. He's quite well-known, quite um, famous, quite rich. Um, He's an atheist. And uh, 10 years ago, 11 years ago now, I think, he he made a documentary called Religulous. Uh, Religulous is a combination of the word religion and the word ridiculous. Religulous, a documentary uh, to show how ridiculous religion is. It's a very professional quality production from Momentum Studios, so think The King's Speech, The Young Victoria, that kind of thing. Uh, It's a mainstream studio. In this documentary, Meher lied to various people to get them to give interviews so that he could then make fun of them. But he also reveals some unsettling facts about an ancient book. He's speaking to a Christian, and he says to this Christian, look, you believe all this stuff about Jesus. There's fairy tales about Jesus, The the Jesus story isn't even original. And this Christian looks at him and says, how so? And and just to make, just to be sure I'm being fair to Bill Mayer, I'll, I'll just quote exactly this. These are his words. Written in 1280 BC, the Book of the Dead describes a god, Horus. Horus is the son of the god Osiris born to a virgin mother he was baptized in a river by Anup the baptizer, who was later beheaded. Like Jesus, Horus was tempted while alone in the desert, healed the sick, the blind, cast out demons, and walked on water. He raised Asar from the dead. Asar translates to Lazarus. Oh yeah, he also had 12 disciples. Yes, Horus was crucified, and after three days, two women announced Horus, the savior of humanity, had been resurrected. That's just astonishing, isn't it? How does that make you feel about your Christian faith? This was written in 1280 B.C., Given all the parallels with the biblical account of Jesus, any reasonable person would conclude that Christianity is a copycat religion. It's, just, it's no different from any other made-up religious belief system. I checked yesterday, and you can buy this documentary on Amazon for $16.99. It has 83 customer reviews, averaging four and a half stars. It's obviously good stuff. There's only one problem. Not a single statement of everything that I just read, is true. The entire thing from beginning to end is just a tissue of lies. It's absolutely extraordinary that this is still on the market. The only thing that is true about it is that in ancient Egypt, there was a god called Horus. That's well known. Everything else is completely made up. You know, we hear this kind of thing and we say, goodness me. He is the father of lies. Remember that. That means we need wisdom and discernment. We need to be very careful what voices we listen to. Attacks are going to come at God's people from the outside. But at the same time, let me say this too. If we think that the greatest spiritual challenges we face come from the outside, we are absolutely kidding ourselves. What is the greatest danger to my spiritual life and health? It's this thing in here. It's my own heart. That's the greatest danger to my spiritual life and health. Not anything out there. It's the remaining sin in here. Far too easy to apply this passage to, you know, nasty enemies that come against us, the Amalekites of our own day, but we need to apply it to all the challenges that come, including fightings and fears within. Often spiritual attack is going to come in the form of temptation, doubt, fear, and so on. All these things that are happening inside my own heart, inside my own mind. And what we need to get into our heads is that in both cases, God determines the outcome of every battle. What we need, alongside the exertion of our greatest effort, is total dependence on Him. It's what Sean was saying earlier uh, with, 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 the, with the, the young ones. We can't create it in ourselves. We must look to Him, and we must look to Him continually, constantly, to strengthen us. So whether it's the unbelieving world outside the church, whether it's an attack of temptation in some area in my life, whether it's the insidious voice of doubt, whatever it is, we need to look to our banner. We need to fix our eyes on Him. The Lord is my banner, and so whatever form the battles might take, I'm going to look to Him. I'm going to remember that God is good, and the gospel is true, and the battle belongs to the Lord. And then I'm going to learn the great practical lesson of Exodus 17. After this battle was over, the Lord instructed Moses to keep a record of it, to write a memorial in the book. And Moses built an altar, verse 15, and he called it, the Lord is my banner. And then he says something. He said, a hand upon the throne of the Lord, not even a sentence, it's just a kind of ringing declaration. It's a slightly enigmatic expression. People have interpreted it in different ways, but here's by far the most likely explanation. By raising the staff of God towards heaven, Moses was symbolizing that only the presence of God with His people could help them. So, he's symbolizing the presence of God with His people. is coming this way, if you like. The people look up, and they say, God is with us. There is His staff. God is with us. But it's also going that way. It's also a constant appeal to God. Only You can help us, and so we look to You. We depend upon You. Moses is symbolizing their appeal, their plea, help us. In other words, Moses was putting his hand upon the throne of the Lord. And that's where we find the great practical lesson of these verses. Put your hand upon the throne. Put your hand upon the throne. Yes, fight the battle, but when Paul tells us in Ephesians 6 to put on the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness and the shoes of readiness and the shield of faith and the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit and the whole armor of God, what does he then say? Put it all on, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all persever- perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me. We have to understand what it means in practical terms that the outcome of the battle on the ground was determined on the top of the hill. We have to understand what it means that we are invited to put our hands on the throne, not any throne, the throne. It's an astonishing thing. A man called David Dixon was an elder um, for many years in the 19th century. He wrote a striking phrase. He He said this, prayer is the most practical and powerful thing in the world, for it moves the hand that moves the universe. Prayer is the most practical and powerful thing in the world, for it moves the hand that moves the universe. Now, of course, we know God is sovereign, God is free, He's not controlled by us, but at the same time, He has told us that somehow He meaningfully uses the prayers of His people. In some sense, prayer moves the hand that moves the universe. Here, the uplifted hands of Moses symbolize that crying out to God for help and for deliverance. Of course, he gets exhausted. He's holding up a staff. It might not be that heavy, I have no idea, um, but you hold that up. Try it this afternoon, go home and pick up just a mop or something See how long you can do that. Um, He gets exhausted. He's there for hours. The battle's raging all day. And so he gets Aaron and her to help him. He sits down, holds it like this. They They hold his arms. Moses is able to hold up the staff because his friends are with him. I don't think you can get too fanciful about these things, but I don't think it's wrong to see in that something of the significance of depending on the Lord together, helping one another as we go about the spiritually draining business of crying out to Him. Prayer can be hard. It can be spiritually and emotionally exhausting. Remember Jesus in Gethsemane as a whole weight upon Him of 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 a very particular nature, but remember what He did. Peter, James, John, come with me I'm going into the garden. Come with me and pray with me. Stay with me and pray with me and help me. And what did they do? They fell asleep. What would have happened if Aaron and her had decided to take a nap? Do you, in common with so many Christians, do you want to pray but struggle to pray? Maybe one of the reasons is that you're trying to do it alone. Private prayer times are good. I want to encourage you to make that a regular part of your life, but we're here to help one another too. And that means that one of the, I can't emphasize this strongly enough, one of the keys to a more vibrant prayer life is prayer meetings. Uh, Maybe that strikes dread into your heart, but it doesn't need to. Prayer meetings are an immense help to the Christian who wants to pray but struggles If you read through Acts, the early Christians are always praying together. I mentioned this a few weeks back at the evening service, but it struck me recently. Um, If you were to to come to our prayer time on a Sunday morning, the morning service, the evening service, our Thursday evening prayer time, and the monthly uh, Larbert Church's Youth Trust prayer breakfast, then you have just prayed 220 times in a year before you even get started on your own private prayers. That's not a bad start, is it? That's that's, that's a pretty good start. Or, Or come to whichever of those you can come to corporate prayer, and it doesn't matter. As I've said many, many times, it doesn't matter in corporate prayer whether you're the one praying aloud or whether you're hearing the prayers of others and and praying with them in your mind and in your heart and saying amen to them at the end. It just doesn't matter. Corporate prayer is such a help to our prayer lives. It's one of the ways that we show that as a congregation, we really are depending on God's strength and not our own. As I said earlier on, one of the great encouragements of this past week was to see 50 people at the prayer meeting on Thursday. It's always a delight to see new people coming along, um, and, and, and we could have no greater encouragement than that. It's also it's just, a, it's just a practical way of strengthening the witness of the gospel through our church. There's nothing more practical than to see that meeting grow. So important. Hebrews 4 encourages us to draw near to the throne of grace with confidence. Draw near to the throne. Come put your hand here. Why? Because we have a great high priest who knows our need, says Hebrews 4. Jesus is risen. He sits at the right hand of God. He has His hand on God's throne, and He intercedes for us. We put our hand on His as we come in prayer. And in this astonishing paradox, we move the hand that moves the universe. let me finish with one one more great war story second world war it was the 18th of june 1944 and dr martin lloyd jones uh, the doctor as he was known was leading worship at westminster chapel in london uh, one week earlier the first pilot pilotless v1 uh, flying bombs had been launched from germany they were known as doodlebugs um, they caused just huge terror. People, this was new. It was just a hideous and devastating weapon. Um, at 11:20, as the doctor was leading in prayer, you have to picture this: a very large church with a large congregation. He's at the front; he's leading in prayer. Everyone has their heads bowed. And in the distance, they hear a low rumble. And the rumble gets louder and louder and louder and louder until it is almost overhead, and at that moment, the noise cuts out. Dr. Lloyd-Jones has been praying. He continued to pray until the noise was such that his voice just couldn't be heard in the church. At that moment, he paused. The noise cut out, the engine cut out overhead, and then there was an almighty bang. The, The building cracked audibly. Pieces of plaster and dust fell from the ceiling onto the congregation. A nurse who was there that morning describes what happened. As the impact of the doodlebug was heard, the entire congregation rose to its feet. After the most brief pause, the doctor continued his prayer as if nothing had happened. And we all sat down again. It was only after he had finished talking to God that anything regarding the incident was said to the congregation. That's a pretty good picture. Whatever challenges come in life, fightings and fears within, without, even when bombs fall from the sky, keep praying. Put your hand upon the throne. Let's do that now. Let's pray. God, our Father, we do that now. We reach out to You. We put our hand upon Your throne. We ask that You might, by the supernatural power of Your Holy Spirit, You might apply these things to our hearts, convince and convict us of our helplessness apart from You, and of Your absolute power and adequacy, Your supreme majesty and strength, Your sovereignty over all things. Help us to know ourselves secure in You. Help us to look to You steadfastly, and help us to show that we trust You by being men and women of prayer. Grant to us this deep conviction that whatever comes we might pray on without ceasing. Help us. We need your strength. We need your help. And so we look to you. You are our banner. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.